HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. From simple to gourmet, nothing's fresher or tastier in recipes than homegrown, vine-ripened veggies and savory herbs. Do you grow your own? With Bonnie Plants, a kitchen garden at your back door or in containers can produce an amazing harvest for cooking and for sharing. Find how-tos, plans, and more at bonnieplants.com. Your recipes might not change, but your results sure will. Fresh, healthy Bonnie veggies and herbs. Get growing. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And this is Greenhorn's Radio, Radio Study on Farmers by Young Farmers. I'm happy to be joined today by Julia McDonald at Pleasant Spot Farm in Montano, Illinois. Welcome to the show, Julia. You know, Severin, I can um, I can barely hear you, unfortunately. I know. Yeah. No matter how hard I try, that's what happens. They have oh, okay. much more grants given to their little. Okay, well, we'll try to. I'll, I don't know if my husband will be able to pick it up, but I can try to. I can hear you. I think well enough to hear your questions. Um, maybe we should start with a little bit of a description of how you discovered this passion inside yourself um, that landed you onto your pleasant plot. Okay, so I think you asked um, how we started the farm and why we did, and mo- I think that it, it originated actually more in my husband, um, and because we have some family land, or he did, he does, and um, just had always been gardening and um, interested in using the land for, for growing food rather than selling it off to a developer. And I have always been interested in that kind of food system, politics, and, and things like that. So it kind of made, it made a lot of sense for us once we met each other and, um, and kind of found that out. So we were both game, and I think that's pretty unusual for us both to want to dive into it. So maybe we should start with um, a little description of your operation today, kind of the marketplace that you're playing into, the landscape around your operation now, some of the core components of 
the success of your business um, and operation, um, and then maybe why you call yourself peasants. Oh, well, we kind of like the name of our peasants plot for the just the double meaning kind of like um, the plot being sort of to, I don't know, regain some, you know, people's control, I guess, over food choice and food system, maybe. But I think we just kind of like the name. <laughs> um, and... So the the landscape, I think I heard you ask about that. The landscape yeah. is just, um, we're basically in the middle of Illinois farm country, and it's um, soy and corn, and corn and soy all, you know, every year. We are a 20-acre strip that is um, the only organic, uh, organically grown uh, farm for miles around. We we don't oh. grow corn or soybeans. We're right. just a produce farm. We right. only do vegetables. Yeah, yeah. And we do um, mostly, uh, we have decided to follow the community-supported agriculture model. Just thinking that of that as being... Um, we, we also try to go to farmer's markets, um, but with farmer's markets, we've just um, been kind of frustrated with a little bit, um, having to bring home waste, uh, you know, after spending so much work on um, bringing a certain amount to the market and then having it be a rainy market day. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this from lots of farmers. Um, this, the CSA is just like a much more secure income for, for it's, it's much more difficult, I think, for the farm, but more of a secure income. And so we've had the farm out here since 2007 and started with a CSA farm um, in 2008? No, 2006. We started doing no. a small CSA. 2006, because we moved out here. Oh, I mean, 2008. 2008. I'm sorry. Okay. Jesus. Yeah, and then, and then it was like 20 people at that time, right? 20 people in 2008, and then we moved it up to 60, and then we moved it up to 150, and then 250, and then 250. And that's where it was, um, and that's kind of where it is now. So hopefully I answered your question, Severin. Well, um, that all makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess the question that maybe would be very interesting to a lot of people who are considering farming in places that are predominantly in commodity production, what are some of the, what are some of the pros and cons of being in, in, in that context? Obviously, you're your CSA customers are your link to the marketplace now more than the farmer's market, but what's it like to be surrounded by corn and soybeans, and how, how would you counsel others who might be looking at that option um, or what that experience might be? So, like, the specific, specifically you want me to address the just the proximity and the being out here among the conventional farms? Is that correct? Um, yeah, exactly. So whether that is, like, well, for at market, actually, I just came from market today, um, and I'm actually the only organic vendor there, and and I have an okay relationship with the other farmers. I actually had a really good exchange with one of them today. Um, 
not, you know, I, I don't know, Todd, do you want to talk about your relationship with the farmers down here? And she, she asked about the pros and cons of being located where we are. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I can't. I don't know what the pros are, other than that there's a lot of uh, farmland out here, and we're we're just 50 miles south of Chicago, so there's a lot of people there who are interested in what we're doing. Um, and you, yeah, I mean, obviously you can't have a, a lot much. There's no acreage available in the city, so our, our, we're reasonably close to a, a good sized market. Um, I don't know. I can't think of a pro, uh, uh, you know, a good side to being surrounded by corn and soybeans. I mean, we, I'd prefer to be surrounded by organic farmers. We have a buffer zone, you know, in between our land and theirs, and we grow grass tall. Um, and I like this season. I hope to be uh, growing a lot of this big blue stem, which is a native grass that grows real tall. And we grow a lot of rye and cover crops and stuff. And we have a 30-foot buffer zone on our land that we have to we have to use that 30 feet uh, as opposed to them uh, doing anything to keep us uh, any chemicals from getting on our our plants. Um, so that's kind of frustrating. So that, that so that so that's just kind of frustrating. Yeah, I don't feel like I have much in common with uh, grain farmers. Um, but yeah, yeah. So. The, but that was your family's land, so that's where you landed. Uh, basically, yes. Yeah. Yep. I mean, but if 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 it weren't if we were purchasing land, it would be it would be difficult. I I think at least in Illinois to find areas where where you can afford land that's not going to be surrounded by um, corn and soybeans. I mean, our our land is good good land in that we have like five foot deep uh, topsoil, and it was it's been and and uh, the the ground that we're on it's been cultivated since like it was first deeded in like 1852 or something like that but it was a dairy for years and there was wheat in the rotation for years so our soil has very good organic matter so that that is a good thing and it's and it's it's very flat so there's not really any erosion problems So it's easy to farm. There's not a lot of rocks. and We don't have a lot of deer. That's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't have a whole lot of wildlife coming out of the woodlands or anything. We don't yeah, have so any there's woodlands. Some, there's some benefits to all that, Although, and not that we wouldn't like a lot more trees and stuff. We do have a lot of, of wind. Yeah. Todd's been working on these high tunnels, and um, that's been a challenge because we really think those are important to integrate into our farm, but it's, it's like murder to just get those things up um, and keep them from getting storm damage out here. Yeah, around us, where we, ha we have a lot of storm winds up in the north country, people put down like anchors, like uh, cement inside of a 55-gallon drum and then bury yeah. that and have multiples of those to, to anchor down the greenhouses. Cause, yeah, um, yeah, we, we are so just anchored in co concrete, too. Otherwise, you end up having, like, a flapping plastic dead whale, broken, lung, broken ribs of a dead whale on your farm. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you guys have built up your infrastructure and, from it sounds like, from scratch, built up everything you need to 
run a super diversified farm. And I, just from your descriptions of it, it sounds like you've really explored many of the financial options that were available to you. FSA, yeah. Kickstarter, community fund, community funding, grants, personal savings. I mean, every... Um, so maybe your approach, your attitude towards it, and what you've learned from that process that you might share with younger growers. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is something we have, are going to... A lot of CSA farmers are going to be like us in that they will have to seek non-traditional sources of funding. Um, you know, banks aren't going to look at a business plan because they haven't seen very many business plans, I don't think. I mean, I tried to actually approach our bank with a business plan, but um, mostly they just looked at the value of our land and um, we did get a grant or a, um, a loan because we had that. Um, but it's hard to put together a business plan when you're just starting out in this business in this particular organic vegetable CSA business when you've never done it before. So we've, um, you know, we started out with a little bit of bank loan and then the grants that we've gotten have been probably the most important um, and chiefly the Frontera Farmer Foundation um, is, is, our, is really a godsend. Um, we've gotten that... A, three times, and they really are just trying to supply farms with the necessary infrastructure. Their goal is simply to have more of local and more organic produce coming into Chicago. So if you can prove that you can do that with a certain project, then you compete with lots of other applicants, but um, there's, you know, if you have a good project and a good plan, we've found that's that's been a great resource for us. And then this year we tried the Kickstarter thing, um, and that was a very oh, no. interesting project. I'm not sure I would recommend that. Although we did, a, we did. It worked. It worked. Yeah. So I would say it's a good. It's definitely worth trying. Yeah. That's true. It worked. It was just. It was. That was the hardest one out of all. We got a government the, grant too, and we've gotten the other grants. And our and our well, USDA and and our. CS. Yes. Uh, and I, I think the NRCS still has, like, good grants, and I, I think there's been less of them because of sequestration. Um, but I, I believe that I, – I'm not, I'm not positive this about – but I think the NRCS um, ha, are doing as many grants as they ever have, if not more. Yeah, so we got and, one of our high tunnels through that program, and then two of our high tunnels were received through a specialty crop um, block, um, and we were rewarded that based on, you know, we basically had to show other farmers how to, we had to somehow show that the project was for the greater good of Illinois. So we, we did some workshops, and um, we ended up with a publication about the construction experience. So very non-traditional um, stuff, you know, I would say, like well, as opposed to farmers, other farmers, and maybe other businesses. Well, and in the scope of things, I mean, I've just been listening to a lecture about the history of the American West and the incredible investment that was made to transform an arid landscape, you know, half of the acreage of our country that gets less than 20 inches of rain per year, and the massive coordination of 
land-grant universities, the Bureau of Reclamation, land management, subsidies, water infrastructure bills, major, major uh, structural and coordinated effort to bring that land into, product, into production and into um, a source of wealth for the nation based on a very long-term understanding that that was going to be a powerhouse to develop our continent. And, you know, in a certain sense, we're bounded a little bit too much sometimes by our own contemporary moment and having to struggle always to prove that alternative agriculture is, in fact, providing a service of food sovereignty and regional self-reliance. Um, and food security to the places in which we live and that we're just almost like, um, if we looked at it from a different historical perspective, the incentive that you guys talk about that's provided by that Frontera grant where they're saying, listen, we're here to reward those who increase production local to us in this place to support food security in this region, that they're operating more in the in a historical norm than is this very limited market-based approach that only values can compete in a highly distorted food economy, distorted, obviously, by um, federal farm policies that create cheap food and yeah. dot, dot, dot. Um, so anyway, it's funny. It's uh, I don't know where that's going to go as a conversation point, but maybe you have some response. Well, I mean, just the last thing. I mean, I... I was having some difficulty kind of grasping or um, hearing some of what you were saying, but the, I got the gist of it, and I also heard the last part that resonated with me about um, just foreign policy and how and basically we feel that that is, um, you know, we're re- always feeling that it's difficult to compete with um, the global economy and people are so used to certain prices in the grocery store and um, even though they say they want to support us you still catch them saying things about how great you know Walmart is now so cheap with organics and and, and things like that frustrate me a little bit yeah well no, it, I, I, I guess it's a little frustrating that the um, Grain producers are are absolutely subsidized by the government, and it, it would be preferable. I would like to do well as a business without any government help, ideally, but that's that's difficult just because of the marketplace and not having huge economy of scale. And um, yeah, and we don't have like a like if you grow corn and soy corn corn wheat and soybeans, you get a check from the government to buy chemicals, you know, whereas, and you'll hear this from probably any specialty crop or vegetable growers, it's the same same old song, but it's like that it's it's frustrating that you have to prove you have to pay money to the to prove that you're not using chemicals yet the people that are using those are are getting paid subsidized you know they're getting money that goes right to monsanto and that that's kind of a frustra- frustrating situation that hopefully will improve um, we'll see. I mean, it's nobody's well, fault, you know, it's like, I mean, in particular, you can't point to one thing and say, you know, this is the problem, but there's just so many, so many frustrations with the way things kind of are, <laughs> I guess, and it's very difficult. I feel like any new coming, new 
organic farmer um, these days has to really be very, very creative and really look outside the box of what you, they, you might think or expect to do. So that's why, you know, the different sources of funding are coming into play and even different sources of labor. Like we're using a big uh, workforce that's a, the worker, a worker share program, for, for example, and um, I don't, things like that that are kind of just creative, um, trying to push the experiment a little bit. Um, so, so I want to just really echo that because I think a lot of the discourse, um, the critique, the pushback, the media reaction to the local foods movement is, oh, well, you know, that'll only work at a niche and you guys are unrealistic and, you know, where's the efficiency and where's the, you know, where's the um, affordability and, and you know, putting, putting, um, putting the harsh judgment onto the producer and not recognizing that we're operating within a system that's profoundly distorted and um, contaminated as, as an economy. It's not an authentic economy. Um, yeah, I mean, it's but not... I wanted, before we go on down in the big railroad of, of, of grumpiness, yeah. What is this cooperative business thing, a uh, cooperative labor thing you're talking about? Okay. Yeah, that's um, it's it's actually a version of community supported agriculture, and not every CSA farm will offer this version. But we've decided to lots of dogs barking. Um, we've decided to make that a bigger part of our business because we've had such positive feedback. And so the worker share program is um, you put a certain amount of hours in um, and you can this year just easily sign up online in five-hour uh, shifts. You can even sign up on a day where we'll pick you up from the, the Metra train station if you're coming from the city. And then we track your hours and um, this year... Basically, you leave with a share that day. The day that you work, you will leave with a share of the harvest. If you're coming out and working prior to harvesting, then it gets tacked on to a uh, you know, bigger share later in the season so that there's a, a fair work exchange. Um, and we really like the feedback. We feel like people are really... Um, the people who decide to do this are really interested in learning about the process and getting their hands dirty and some people won't stick with it, um, but then it's easy to, you know, weed, weed those people out. They just don't come back. Um, and then you just get a good bunch of people who are, are into it. It's a, you know, we have to balance the fact that, um, you know, they're only out here once every other week. So we have to have tasks for them that don't require, you know, a long like a skill set that we've been training them for, you know, weeks. They have to come out here and be able to help us right away for five hours, and and we do expect that they that they do help us. So that's our idea for our workforce. Wow, if you have that's really cool. Too, yeah, I mean, um, the employees are still going to be there too, but we we would like to bring, make a bigger and bigger worker share program just because we feel like it is um, very non-exploitive um, and, and we feel good about it. Well, and I, you know, I feel like a lot of people um, who might eventually become farmers, I've seen this so many times, there's a great, the first step is often the hardest. Like, 
just getting to the point where you're, you know, um, humble enough, but comfortable enough to step into the discomfort of um, doing something you've never done before and entering into this new world of agriculture. So you guys make that, you know, a non-judgmental kind of formulaic, like, oh, this is something that's really casual. Like, you don't have to be nervous or, you know, make a life commitment or, you know, sign an, an oath of poverty. You can just come out, you know, and, and, and sign up. I feel like that's a major benefit for, especially for ambitious people. Uh, yeah. Who, who you know, we're interested to have in, in agriculture anyway, but, you know, who sometimes have a hard time inserting themselves at the very bottom of the food chain. Right. I mean, like the intern thing is, is a big deal. People who, we do have people live out here, um, too, some years. And, I mean, that's huge. You're, you're living at your workplace, and hopefully we all get along. It's intense. And not everyone has that ability to, to commit to that level. Well, uh, yeah, and a lot of, like most of, a lot of our workers here, so yeah, they, they, they live in, in the city and or work like white collar jobs. And if they're, if you live in an urban area, you don't have a space for a, a big garden or some, sometimes they'll have a, a house and a little garden space. Um, but it's a good way for those people to connect to their food systems. And it's and it's good for us because of the yeah because the labor situation as far as in agriculture, um, it's it's just a difficult and exploitive deal. Like there is no, it's not regulated really. There's no minimum wage for ag workers. It's mostly piecework, so so workers get paid per pound. And it's uh, yeah, and it's a, just a. I think it's bad for everyone. The workers. Uh, I mean, I guess consumers who aren't thoughtful about it. It's good for them because it keeps the prices low, which in turn makes it difficult for new people to come into it because there's so the there's so little profit in in organic vegetable growing that you really have to be you know you have to love it and be passionate about food you definitely aren't going to do it for the money because it's in like an intense amount of work for a little bit amount of money so um what is my point i'm trying to make we feel bad we feel bad that we can't pay workers like uh or we feel like we we feel very strapped for you know enough money to pay workers to what we really would want to pay them um, and so I guess that's why we were looking outside of, like, that and to see, like, well, who, who would feel, who, you know, in hiring people as worker shareholders, we're not supporting anybody's family or we're actually supporting maybe a, you know, an interest of theirs and helping educate them and, like Todd said, connect them to their food systems. So we are actually giving them that um, and a really good share of organic vegetables, too. Well, it's a really novel approach, and I hope that we can learn from it more, and you guys will keep telling everyone about your experience with that as a, um, as a way of, you know, maybe even I've heard of people charging to do corporate retreats, you know, for, oh, yeah. um, for major, like, work parties. Um just like novel approaches to getting, um, for especially for big jobs, getting people's hands dirty. Um, yeah. So we're gonna we're running out of time, so I want to make okay. sure I give you the chance to identify or or point to any upcoming events or your favorite nonprofit that's been so amazing to you or um, 
Well, well we do we do like, like the green horns quite a bit, but we also like the farmer uh, Frontera Farmer Foundation um, in the Chicago land area as a great nonprofit organization. We have some events coming up on the farm if you're in Chicagoland, like we do a yoga event on July 20th. It's a farm brunch and tour, um, and we'll be doing a farm dinner probably sometime later in the season when we have tomatoes. So join the listserv of the Peasant's Plot. Uh, <laughs> Peasant's Plot. Peasant's Plot, yes. <laughs> it's the Peasant's Plot to take over the world. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for being on and everyone for joining. Um, the next thing on our list is the Maine Sales Freight Meeting in June 22nd at the Grain Hall in Lincolnville, Maine. We have a panel of, panel of wonderful people, Kate Cronin from the Clearwater, Ellie from the Mystic Chief Traders, Lou Yoder from the Sale Vessel Kwai, Patrick Patrick Kiley and myself, Severin, from Vermont Sale Freight Project and as conveners of this meeting. Um, Chip Really Good, who's a historian of sale freight um, on the main coast. All of us talking about the history, the present, the world, um, the revival of the working sale, and the potential to coordinate um, a barge coming down the coast of Maine carrying regional food. So if that's interesting to you, we will record the whole thing. So you'll be able to download it from greenhorns.net. Uh, slash main sale freight, which is where also you can find all the information. Okay, I'm over time. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thank you. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>